are we better off just letting letting people stew in their own falsehoods? I mean, I think it's a really interesting argument to be made on both sides of that. But but if we've decided that we we want to get along, in either case, that's the book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. And that's why we wrote it, because we're simply not talking to each other independent of, I mean, I'm not even talking about big things like race, gender, and sexual orientation. We're just not talking mm-hmm. to each other anymore. Anyone who, who doesn't have absolute ideological congruity is an enemy. Hi, everyone. Before we start, I want to take a minute to talk about my next book. You may have heard about the story of GameStop in January or February and thought it was all over. You're sadly mistaken. Unfolding Online has been a clash between the corrupt practices of Wall Street and the hive mind of the internet. It's a hot, raging information war pitting retail investors against financial giants swimming in corruption and fraud. The trailer is at the end of this podcast, but if you want to help crowdfund the book or just find out more, you can sign up to my mailing list to get access to a preview of chapter one or go to whenmoon.com to read more about the book. The first 200 people to pre-order the book will get a free pack of To The Moon crayons with their book. I just want to make a quick mention of our sponsors. Namecheap are one of the cheapest places on the internet to get a domain name for your next website. I've used Namecheap for all the sites I've ever purchased and I find it really easy to use. Spreaker are a rapidly growing platform for podcast recording, publishing, and monetization with pricing plans as low as $7 per month. A cheap way to host your podcast and start earning from your back catalog of shows. Finally, ExpressVPN is the internet's most trusted VPN. Protect your privacy and watch and view content that is location locked you could even try watching Netflix from a different country. And right now, they're offering 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN. Please use the links in the description below if you want to support the show. Anyway, here's the podcast. So hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I'm here with Peter Bogosian, the co-author of How to Have Impossible Conversations. Uh, you'll find him on Twitter at Peter Bogosian, and I'll put the link in the description below for people. Uh, Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Josh. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Um, it's a uh, it's a pleasure. I I interviewed uh, James Lindsay, uh, the the your your co-author, uh, the other day, which was uh, just a fascinating conversation. So it's amazing to be able to get to talk to both of you. It's quite exciting. Cool. What did you um, talk about? Um, we talked. We talked quite a lot about um, sort of the. We talked a lot about religion, a lot more than I normally would. Um, and about uh, the foundations of uh, our society's like moral code coming from sort of Judeo-Christian values and whether the erosion of those is has caused the kind of erosion of a lot of the structures of society. But even though that it's not necessarily maybe that we need them to be based in um, like Judeo-Christian values anymore because it's become so ingra- ingrained in the so culture. That's- that's, yeah. We can actually pick up from there. I mean, that's that's the interesting question. With the decline of religion, a new religion has clearly taken its place. And many of the new adherents of, the, of this religion don't even recognize their religion. They're religious. I mean, they, they will if you confront them and you say, okay, well, the traditional religion has this and this adherence doctrine and this key people. 
et cetera. And, and at some point, they'll, they'll admit that there are similarities, but in, sorry, the dogs, the dogs are drinking down there. In the, um, in Plato's Republic, he has this, um, idea of the myth of the metals. And the myth of the metals is that different people and different um, stratas of the society have different metals in their veins. For example, the, the ruling elite has gold or workers have, you know, whatever it is, copper or what have you. Um, and should we just tell people something that's not true? Should we give people the most benign version of things? Because people simply cannot handle not having some kind of doctrine to follow. So... Are we, are we better off, basically, I wouldn't say lying to people because that's perhaps too strong, but are we better off having people in mass believe mm-hmm. more benign delusions? I think there's a case to be made for that, whereas a few years ago, I, I would have said un, unequivocally no. Really? So you, you've changed your mind on this. You think that there's there's room for, uh, like... I I don't want to use the phrase like manufactured ignorance, mm. but that's that's kind of what it seems like you're suggesting is okay. And like perhaps there's a good uh, you've got a good and no, reason that I no, can't think of here. Not not manufactured ignorance. I mean, truth should always be the north star. But if somebody believes something that's a benign delusion, aren't we all better off if they just carry on than recognize that their delusion is benign? They have no reason for, for example, not kicking their dog or worse. Uh, are, are, we, are we better off just letting, letting people stew in their own falsehoods? I mean, I think it's a really interesting argument to be made on both sides of that. But, but if we've decided that we, we want to get along, in either case, that's the book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. And that's why we wrote it because we're simply not talking to each other independent of, I mean, I'm not even talking about big things like race, gender, and sexual orientation. We're just not talking mm-hmm. to each other anymore. Anyone who, who doesn't have absolute ideological congruity is an enemy. It's an existential threat. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really, it's, but then sometimes I feel like, I, I went through an odd experience this weekend. So I was at, at like one of the first music festivals that's been that's been back in the in the UK. And we sort of, everyone, it became very clear to me, like, because so, I've not been a fan of the lockdowns um, and, and just some of the stuff associated with what's come with the pandemic. Um, but that's just like my feeling, like I, I'm not trying to impose that on someone else, but it's, it's, it's led to some heated conversations over the past year and a half. And um, over, the, over the weekend, it was almost as if we all just like silently agreed to not talk about all of these things that we had been so that had everyone at each other's throats for the for the last year and a half for whatever reason and it was this this really magic thing where no one really mentioned it and we were all just able to talk about other stuff without needing to go into those really 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 heavy things and i guess that kind of plays into what you're you're saying here is that you know, are we better off just sometimes leaving it be and letting people sort of have their their thoughts and beliefs? But then, I don't know. In a way, does that does that stop us having the impossible conversations if we just sort of just agree to politely not talk about it? Okay, so you've got a lot of questions. I haven't changed my mind, but I've been rethinking 
the merits of, I was just listening to something the other day. Oh, it was the, uh, I gave a talk in Austin for Ayan Hirsi Ali's AHA Foundation, and they took us to the movie um, um, Islam and the Future of Tolerance with Majid Nawaz and Sam Harris. <clears throat> and one of the things that he says in that movie is um, he kind of takes aim at the idea of agreeing to disagree. Like we just can't agree to disagree on some pretty, pretty fundamental, <laughs> pretty fundamental issues. I mean, he's clearly correct in that. Um, I don't know how deep you want to go in this, but I think a lot of this conversation boils down to whether or not you think that there are moral facts. If you think that there's a moral fact of the matter in the world, and right now you have a large contingent of people who do not believe in moral facts, they believe in power, and they believe in the um, how power manifests itself in institutions and through societies and that power seeks to preserve itself. I mean, there's a whole lexicon and, and set of words like privilege, preserving epistemic pushback, et cetera, that goes with that. Mm. And so it, it is many people, your fellow countrymen and my, my friend, uh, his new book is phenomenal. Uh, Andrew Doyle's uh, free speech, wonderful book. Many, many people, have made the argument it has a long pedigree that if you don't free speech is kind of like a core value it's a fundamental value it's a root value and if you don't have that it's really not possible to move forward collectively as a society unless you have some kind of a discharge of power and so so i've just i've just been thinking you know I've been thinking about a lot of these issues. Sorry if I'm just waxing philosophical here, but you know, I've been That's thinking right. about, how, about how Twitter is the death of wonder. I've been thinking about how our institutions, particular academic institutions, push particular narratives. And if people don't adhere to those narratives, they have some kind of sanction or punishment or diversity office, you know, weaponized against them. And I've been thinking about what we need to start the process of coming together again and go into context. I remember right after 9-11, it was the craziest feeling, man. It was like everybody was nice to each other. Mm. Like people would let each other into traffic, you know. I mean, just it was the weirdest feeling, and I and I, I wondered how long that would last, and it didn't last very long. But how do you recapture that? And I think that the one way way forward is that we have to stop looking at each other through the lens of race and gender and sexual orientation, and we have to start looking at each other from the lens of common humanity. And, and that's what the that's what FAIR does, a foundation <laughs> tolerance of racism on, the, on their advisory board. We, we have to start thinking about each other as people who share common problems, people who are just trying to get to the day. I mean, what did it take us? 20 minutes to get this podcast up and running because my dogs are lunatics. <laughs> like everybody has their own shit to deal with, you know? Mm. Yeah. And, uh Sorry, were you going to finish the mm. thought there? Mm. I mean, this um, this kind like what you're saying is, I think, quite quite accurate. And and something you were talking about um, in in the beginning there was um, the this view view of everything as through the lens of power. And then you've also mentioned like the view of everything through uh, okay, like I must uh, everyone has to announce their like gender, race, identity. Um, uh, pronouns, to, yeah. pronouns. Um, to 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 have, I don't know. It's like acknowledgement of of the things you can't change, which always seemed weird to me. 
um, because I thought those were the things that we weren't meant to care about. Uh, that like that's I don't know. It's just yeah. it's, some of the stuff that that, that goes on. It really because I'm having this this happen a lot with a lot of things is that the stuff we were taught in school and I'm not that like uh, uh, the beard helps, um, but and the slightly receding hairline. But like I'm, I'm I, it's it's not it's only it's not even ten years since I got out of um, like what you would have like high school or whatever up to eighteen, mm. and um, all of the stuff that I got told was like. These are the things that we're meant to like value. These are the things that like are meant to be the the, the foundations of society, um, like human and civil rights, civil liberties, like the the way we interact with each other, like the moral code, um, like respect for institutions, like I, I don't know, debate, like uh, freedom of speech. Mainly is the one that I, I'm concerned about more than anything. Like the. The things I learned in history class is like, look, this is how you get tyranny and dystopia. Like, don't let mm-hmm. don't let governments get way too much power and all these things. It's like, fair enough. Like, I might not be right about them, but it feels like I'm the only one going or at least one of the few people that I, I can see in my circle of, of people that I interact with daily going. Why have all the things we got taught just suddenly evaporated? And like, there's been this really weird, like, turnaround in in i don't know how our entire culture views all of the foundations of the the society does this make sense (laughs) yeah it makes it makes total sense and i my speculation this is the first time i've ever spoken and obviously don't know any of your friends but my speculation (laughs) is a lot more people have questions than are willing to publicly admit those questions to voice their what what is going on this is insane uh, but the problem is that there's an atmosphere of fear right now where people are afraid to discuss this, particularly if they're if they're white people, because they're afraid of being accused of things. Um, mm. And so we we have a situation in which we have a very small, I guess, an eight percent of the population. And I didn't just pull the, I didn't just pluck that number out of the air. A very small, hyper, hyper, hyper vocal minority of people <clears throat> who are attempting to. Um, create a culture of fear to prevent people from having conversations and it's just nastiness and ugliness. But I, I don't think, I think so many people are voicing the concerns that you have. So many people have them, but they're just not voicing them. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something I wanted to get into with you actually, is that like anything, literally anything, a lot of the stuff that, a lot of the stuff that, that comes off and as, as being like controversial, as, as as such um especially on twitter <laughs> and we'll get into your comment about it being the death of wonder because that i really really want to know more about what you mean there but um the are all these opinions that seem controversial like considered controversial by most people like, like i i because I, I find something so difficult to get a grasp on on what people think anymore like the, because yeah maybe social media has like skewed my ability to judge like the public opinion or maybe it's just because like we haven't been interacting with people that much um or but a lot of these issues i can't get a grasp on how many people think it's nuts like what is your sense like what percentage are we talking about here okay (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) i've actually struggled with that precisely because you have so many people uh, who are so hyper vocal and hit, who have soft puppet accounts, multiple accounts, and and they so the whole social media landscape has been 
altered by the views of some people. Okay, so it's like the famous concentric circle things. And then in the middle, like I'm thinking of the people at the university where I work, you, you have it, you have the true believers. Now in the university setting, there is a particularly large number of true believers. And that's because that they have intentionally and by, by design called out any divergent voices. And the more divergent voices you call, in fact, I just tweeted out something about the number of donations to the Republican versus Democratic Party. There's mm. just simply no diver in, uh, viewpoint diversity in, in the academy anymore. That may be a little different in some of the STEM fields, but certainly in the humanities, it's utterly dead. And if anything, in the word studies, it's absolutely dead. So these people are true believers, and they form the core of the core. And then out from... From them are another group of people <clears throat> who aren't vocal about it, but certainly believe it. Uh, they buy into some of the core doctrines about microaggressions and, and belonging and safe spaces and diversity, equity, inclusion, equity in particular. And then out from that, you have people who are caught in that orbit. So, so ba ba basically, you can construct the rest for yourself. But depending on what field you go into? My guess would be in the mil in, in the police right now. That core number of true believers in the the, the equity, diversity, inclusion, critical race theory is small. Just parenthetically, so I we released. Uh, you talked to Jim, my co-author. We released along with another uh, professor, Bruce Gilley, a a um, cheat sheet for social justice, uh, uh, how to respond to yeah. this. So if you mm -hmm. see this, this is what they mean. Okay. So that that might be helpful. And the question is, what percentage of people believe this? Mm. So this is probably more information than you want, but it's a more nuanced answer and it's a more honest answer. Mm. And, and I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't give it. So the problem with your question is that some people will think that they believe it, but not know what it is that they actually believe. Mm. So for example, they'll think that they believe in equity because they think equity means equality. But equity is the opposite of quality. And they won't, they won't understand that. So they'll say, yes, I believe in equity. And then they'll consider themselves beliefs. Now, those aren't true believers. That's like the third circle out, right? The third concentric ring out. Mm -hmm. So that's a complicated response. And I'm sorry if it, if, it, if it wasn't clear, but there's a lot of variables at play, right? There's degrees no. of belief. There's what people think they believe. There's the mm. mechanism of belief filtered through social institutions and media. It's a complicated question. Mm. I guess they wouldn't like you to describe it as a hierarchy of belief. Um, but um, since the, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the postmodernists are not fans of hierarchies. Um, but uh, what is it that like causes this instinct, do you think, to to to... I don't know, uh, uh, lay this, like to try and lay like the, the, the kind of, I hate calling it like the woke ideology, partially because. It's what it is though. Yeah, but it's, it's one of those phrases that I, I, I both think is true, but it also like pain, pains me to use it because it, 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 it's been like kind of like villainized a little bit or like it's, it's almost like you're, you're being like a parody of, of some crazy person ranting well, we on the can, internet. We can, we can try to be politic and call it social justice ideology or critical social justice or anything you want to call it. Mm. I but mean, we're the, the, talking yeah. about the same thing. It's just a different reference. Yeah. 
no, no, you're so right. And the other the other bone I have to pick is that like woke people used to mean um, like someone who was like 1990s, like hippie, like woke, like understood tuned the in. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. Tuned in to the forces of systemic oppression and racism, et cetera. Right. And so that's mm. changed. And so it gets back to the question that, that we started with. Um, I mean, if I if I had known the question we started with, are, are people better off with a, a benign delusion? Taking mm. some guy walked on water and we should all love each other. We love each other. Is it better off if we as a society just value that and don't teach people to critically question that? Um, I, I, I don't think it is because I still think that it, it's important to, in fact, it's indis indispensable importance to believe what's true. But I think that there is something, um, I think that there's an argument to be made for the society being better off in terms of its functioning capacity. Because I do think, uh, just for a utilitarian argument, I do think that there's something, that there is something the older I get, um, the more important it is that the society, um, that we try to enable the minimum amount of suffering or, or create conditions that enable the minimum amount of suffering in the society. Mm. And there are only so many ways we can do that. And every every time every time you take something, uh, uh, um, other than if truth is not your north star, then your beliefs will be arbitrary. Mm. That's the problem. But we also know, or one of the lessons I've come to learn is that people simply their brain is an engine of belief, and they just have to latch on to some. Jonathan Haidt writes about this. Stephen Pinker, Michael Shermer. We have to have some grasping on to uh, the moral mind. The moral mind overrides the rational mind. And that's mm -hmm. why we're in the situation we're in. Because if there wasn't any truth to, to, to most of this stuff in critical social justice, literally no one would believe it. But there is racism. There has been mm -hmm. oppression. There still is oppression. Mm -hmm. There is misogyny. There is homophobia. There is bigotry, right? So it's not as if you're talking about something completely divorced from reality. There are historical and and current markers and and ways to to look at those problems and that's one of the reasons that the ideology has gained such traction one of the reasons there are others that's that's a big one i mean if it were mm. bullshit right i mean if it were total delusion it probably wouldn't have gained anywhere near the cultural relevance traction yeah no no you're totally right it's like people wonder why some people why people get drawn into like conspiracy theories is because like there's like a a portion of it that's right you know, there's there's all the not the not the not like crazy like conclusions that people end up drawing, but then you, when you come back to it, then there's some things that like really are just horrendously corrupt or based on people like trying to break the law and do horrible right. things. So, so that would be that would be that would be an inroad to a conversation if the woke would have that conversation with you, and and we haven't discussed this yet, but it's inimical. It's it's um. They don't really have a value system that that prioritizes free speech, debate, um, conversation. But if they did, one of the questions that I would have is, okay, so what's your end goal? Now, you would see that those end goals are rather similar to each other in some senses. You know, their end goal would be to uproot the entire system, depending on who you talk to. Hmm. Um my end goal, but it gets back to whether or not you believe in moral facts. So most most folks 
who harbor these beliefs are in the orbit of the ideology, they happen to have different starting premises about how bad racism, sexism, homophobia, bigotry, transphobia, etc. are. And then from those, they work back and think that there are systems of power that keep these oppressive forces in place. So we need to rip down and destroy the system. But in even order to know that, unless you've done an insane amount of reading in the literature like I have, uh, it's always best to talk to somebody who believes this stuff and say, well, you know, what's your end goal? Why do you believe this? What, you know, and, and once you figure out what the end goal is, then you can go back to figure out if, if there are ways that you can achieve that, uh, mutual ways. But again, that assumes a convergence of reality in that they uh, want to have that conversation and they want compromise. I find that that's simply not the case there. In fact, in the literature, it specifically says there's no compromise. There's just disruption of the systems of power and, and uh, that, that have corrupted. It's kind of like the fallen man, man the fallen. Uh, mm, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I get what you mean. Yeah, we're, we're yeah, the, the leaving the Garden of Eden. We follow. Yeah, we're always going to be sinners. Um, yep. it's the, yeah. Yeah, that's a really funny, um, actually, comparison, given that. Yeah. Well, Jim, Jim and yeah. I wrote an article. Jim and I wrote an article a few years ago. I think this was the first article ever published on. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it was the first article we wrote it for this thing called All Think, ever published, saying that this is a religion, and that was uh, privilege is the original sin, in which we cons- we mm. made the parallel between privilege and original sin, mm-hmm. and it's I think really I've read remarkable. It. Yeah, it's really remarkably similar. I think that website went out of business. That's disappointing. Yeah, but the article, you can find the article out there. But yeah, I'm like sure. The, the proto-explanation for a lot of this stuff. But I think that, well, okay, well, it's your show. We could take it any one of a number of directions. <laughs> well, I mean, I what's mean, on, what, you, go ahead. Like the thing the thing that's that's just sort of, the, I'm I'm always interested to get down into in when it when it gets to people who are like, yeah, in in any kind of ideological like rut that then decide that you can't talk about certain topics. Um, and I saw you tweeting about um about Robert Robin DiAngelo actually when he was saying that comedy is an excuse to be racist, and it, mm-hmm. it's just like uh it was a very like good example to me of this idea that I don't know conversation or or discussion or comedy and all these things need to be like sanitized. Um, right. And, and the, uh, the, this, this is well, very, very much um, in, in the vein of, of your book, like how to have impossible conversations is because it's there is, there's like, at least from a corner of, of society, um, a, an attempt to stop you even discussing the flaws in their ideology. And, right. and uh, the part that I'm interested in is like, what do you think it is that, that makes people think you know we can't say this like is it is it like a puritanical instinct is it like trying to shut off does does the brain just like not want to confront that is it like put, like shutting off like corridors that it doesn't like it's really interesting there's been some some interesting um stuff on rape law and um i think dershowitz alan dershowitz wrote a piece on this if memory serves me correctly a while ago it's finding it, it's very difficult to find people who professors who will teach rape law now. And the reason is so many students either won't take it or they're, they're traumatized. Or they don't want to read. I hope this answers your question. They don't want to be 
they don't want to be re-traumatized or what have you. The consequence of that is that um, it's very difficult for people who have been subject to that to find adequate representation now. So we've created a culture that prevents us from solving a problem because we won't talk about it and confront it. But but here's the, the, the thing that I think we have to think about. Why is it? It's either totally fanciful delusion or it's based in somewhat reality or it's co- completely real. Why is it that so many people right now are coming out and saying that they've been racially traumatized and they can't even hear these thoughts. Now, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt have a book on that, The Calling of the American Mind, and that offers what I think is an cogent explanation for it, and that we've created these cultures in which people have become, um, they've become more susceptible to offense, right? They've, they're, they've become brittle. Here's one thing to think about, and I'm and I'm trying to be very careful when I articulate this because it's it's navigating a minefield, right? So there are people, people have been oppressed. There there has been racism, and up until recently, there was systemic racism, and pretty vicious and wicked systemic racism too. And the consequences of not giving people equality for so many years. Do you ever watch Star Trek? Uh, yeah, occasionally. There's a, there's a great episode, uh, Mirror, Mirror, in the first the original Star Trek, in which he gives an, an incredible speech at the end about how, how if you don't work for justice, the tables become overturned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sooner or later, it's not sustainable because people will cry out to be free. So we've denied people opportunities for so long. Now, uh, now the moral tables are attempting to be turned. And as Ibrahim Kendi has said, the only remedy to past discrimination is current and future discrimination. It's not an exact quote, but it's something like that. Hmm. But that we have to discriminate against people to, and not only discriminate people, discriminate against people in perpetuity, right? Because the work mm-hmm. is never done. Hmm. And there's all white people, uh, and it's not a, you know, people can conflate this between whiteness and white people. But I hope it answers your question in that I think people are susceptible, people are um, enraged about this for a number of reasons. The best reason I think Haidt and Lukianov give in the coddling of the American mind. But remember, again, there is something real behind all of this but we're just making it worse, right? We're making people more fragile in a sense. Mm. What um, what credence do you give to the idea that the entire um, woke social justice warrior uh, ideology and it's kind of like prevalence in the last five to 10 years or it's, it's yeah, it's proliferation, especially um, in um, in the mainstream more and more uh, has been because people need something to like struggle against and when there's nothing like obvious when the um I, i'm gonna That's assume you, you know it's like the hierarchy of needs um thing where you know once once your basic things are are fulfilled you're still gonna like try and like humans are still gonna try and find struggle like it yeah do, do you get much your, credence um... to that 
Yeah, on your island there, that's the argument uh, that Douglas Murray makes as well. There are not enough Nazis, so we have to invent them. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. so when as we solve, so we have a baseline that we're going to be enraged at a baseline. And as the conditions externally improve, then we have to find ever uh, smaller gradations of things about which we're outraged. So that's that's part of it. Um, Wilfred Riley told me at a conference I, I, where where we attended in Bozeman. He swore he didn't tell me. Told everybody. I thought it was this was one of the most interesting things I heard, and I kind of kicked myself because it never had occurred to me. This is a mind virus of the lower upper class. So this is clearly a mind virus. Like people have caught some creepy something that interferes with not just their cognitions, but the very way they form thoughts. And but it's a mind virus of the lower upper class. And if you know, once I thought about that, I'm like. Holy shit! That's it, it's it's just it's it's everybody in the lower upper class now seems to be infected with this, uh, and then it's 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 seeped out in this in and so I'll tell you my um, not just speculation but as um, Calvin Trilling and others have said, there's almost never one cause to a problem. It's multi-causal. I would say that the main reason for the spread of wokeism. And this is the was the most difficult thing to explain to people a few years ago. I, I don't know if it is anymore. Uh, I certainly had some bitter, bitter arguments with people like Tim Poole, you know, popular commentators and academics about it. But um, is that it starts in the academy and it seeps out, mm -hmm. and so it's taught to students. Uh, they're graded on it. They have fake bodies of knowledge which they've manufactured whole cloth. Mm -hmm. It's called idea laundering, Brett Weinstein's term, and I've written about it pretty extensively at this point. And then those people go into the workforce and they bring these ideas with them. And then over time, sooner or later, they all become normative. It's just, it just what the norm is. But this is clearly a mind virus. And we so, can, you know, when, let me just, I just want to finish that thought real quick. So one of the mm -hmm. things I learned from the New Atheist movement is, we look at people who have escaped a religion and we ask them questions about it. Mm -hmm. You know, Dan Barker, who had the Freedom From Religion Foundation, was telling me that, um, you know, when he was a Christian, he thought he got this warm, fuzzy feeling in him and he thought everything was great and that, you know, Jesus was holding his hand and stuff. And when we ask people who have left a religion, tell me about that. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? We can do the same thing. We can just ask people who have met, escaped wokeism, mm. right? Um, and, and look at the term there, escape wokeism, or maybe abandoned wokeism, but not lost it. Because like if you lose your keys, you want them back. Mm. Um, but we can look and we can look at their experiences. And almost invariably, um, pe people will, like we can listen to their testimonies and w what what happened to them. There's an interesting movie by a woman. I can't remember her name. Uh, she follows me on Twitter. She seems such a, like a, such a lovely person. She's from Australia. Uh, it's called The Red Pill, where she looks at um, men's issues, and then she kind of changes her mind. And then that phrase, red pill, has come to mean like you're red pill out of something. You've changed your mind. You were once um, a social justice warrior or had fallen your epistemic system had fallen prey to that belief, but then how somehow you escaped it. You've been red-pilled. Mm. 
Yeah, but I just, yeah, one more thing, and then I'm going to shut up because I just sorry. No, 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 sorry. <laughs> I guess I'm in a pensive, a pensive mood. I didn't sleep too much. It it is really interesting to me how one of the features of this ideology is that it seeks to buttress itself to maintain itself. It seeks to buttress itself from criticism, from self reflection, from self examination, and it seeks to do so under the language of critical, of you know, do the work. Um, it has created a protective sheath around itself to prevent any form of genuine self-examination. And it's, so So that alone should tell you it's false. Mm. Um, so I was in, in a car, and then I, I will shut up after this. I'll tell you this story. I was in a car with somebody and they were um, just recently, and they, they were, you know, just going on about the whole suite of beliefs that everyone believes. And my son turned to me and he said, it's amazing to me that she was not suspicious at all of what she believes. Like, literally, shouldn't you be suspicious of something if everybody else in the society believes it? And particularly if everybody else in the society has just suddenly adopted it in the last five years? Should, mm. Isn't that a call for suspicion? Mm. I mean, of course it is. But she was completely unsuspicious, and she had no concern for her intellectual and moral life. She wasn't concerned that she wasn't suspicious, mm. which is even deeper. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that that yeah. There's there's a few that 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 really reminds me of. Um, there was a journalist I spoke to nine months ago, maybe. Uh, who's the? She's like the editor of this great like. Um, online investigative news site in in britain they're they're fairly new but they do like a once a month print edition it's called the um, byline times and i asked oh, yeah. her yeah, yeah. yeah so i asked her like was she concerned about censorship on social media um because you know i thought as a an independent journal or as a journalist at like an independent news site um that's you know publishing some some great investigative work about um very powerful people in britain uh, connected to the government or in the government um, i was like are you worried about censorship and she said yeah there's a lot of mis misinformation out there and i was like you have you don't, you don't even realize like the, you're you're like sitting there like propping up the thing that might take your site down and and it it's there's this weird weird thing going on with the with just i don't know what's happening but the whole issue of of people yeah. being being censored online and it's it's any any criticism is now of of the official narrative is now right. very very quickly like shut down whatever that happens to be on and it started very slowly and um as you've you've sort of pointed out you, you argued with people about things like this a few years ago and my uh, a really good friend of mine argued with me about it um and i was on the other side thinking oh this isn't that big an issue this is just a few crazy people um, we don't need to really everybody, worry about this. Everybody thinks that. Yeah, everybody I, I admittedly I was. Yeah, I was. I was being naive. Um, I think. Um, and, and, and yeah, but the this, uh, like, what is? Why do they think that just the shutting down of criticism is is all right? This is the thing I can't get uh, get past uh, in my okay. head because. All right. Yeah, like anytime gonna, I watch yeah. like films at the minute, like from okay. five, ten, fifteen years ago, from my childhood. I don't know why I'm watching them. They're on like Netflix and I'm sitting trying to write a book. So I'm always 
procrastinating. But always, the message is always like, you know, be the one fighting against like evil and like stand up for what you believe in and, you know, freedom of speech and like freedom and all these things. Like, well, I've watched like Indiana Jones and he's like fighting the Nazis, like fight the people who are like trying to crush freedom and all these lessons we learned about that. And like in, in all of pop of like pop culture and society and cultures, like for 40 years, this was the thing that we said, like freedom, freedom of speech. And all of a sudden it's just turned and flipped and we don't seem to care. I don't know what's happening. It's a, it's a tragedy. And those are the values, the freedoms, the liberties that people died for and that are worth fighting for. And we've Mm -hmm. lost sight of what that means we we've lost sight of what it means to have freedom of assembly freedom of the press um i want to go back to your and, and it's really a, western civilization is under siege right now the barbarians are not only abdicate they're they're ripping down the institutions they're ripping down statues particularly in portland if you live in portland you could see that and we and people have um exploited the uh um the political process and gotten some pretty pretty radical people uh particularly here in portland again you don't really need to to look that far for it um but i want to get back to what you had said before because i'd like to offer you an explanation if i may for how we got into the situation about hearing other ideas and criticism so the university where i teach portland state university has um um put forward a faculty resolution that basically, and, and a woman, I'm not going to mention her name, but you can view the piece in the Chronicle of Higher Ed. You should actually link to her piece and to my response to it. My, my response to the Chronicle of Higher Ed is criticism of ideas is not harassment. Criticism of ideas is not harassment. So these folks have claimed, are now claiming, and, and pretty much all of them actually, not even for all of them are claiming the administration, the union, the, uh, the the faculty um, that criticism in particular of critical race theory is harassment. It's a kind of um, well, I'll just let I'll let folks read the piece. Hopefully, it's not behind a, a paywall. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what you you have to claim that it's harassment because if you didn't, you'd have to defend the ideas, and that's what we do in academia. We throw out ideas, we engage ideas, we debate ideas, but not critical race theory. We don't do that to critical race theory because that's injuring to people. That's traumatic to people. That's harmful to people. Mm-hmm. But nobody says that about anything else. Nobody says that about building a bridge. Nobody says that about, um, I don't know, in philosophy, I think the example, nobody says, philosophers don't say it about free will, but they only say that about things, topics relating to critical race theory in mm-hmm. particular. And more broadly, race, gender, et cetera, sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. But that's what you do when you can't defend your ideas. You just sit up, someone's harassing me. It's an abuse of academic freedom. Someone's harassing me. Well, if you had enough evidence, you wouldn't need to worry about, you wouldn't need to worry about anybody. You just present your evidence. But so, again, that's the sheath that I said. The whole ideology, it has a sheath around it. It prevents it from being criticized. And that's by design. That's by design. Mm. It's not yeah. an accident. Yeah, you don't get you don't get crying physicists when you when you critique their string theory like 
<laughs> no, but you do get crying physicists when they wore a shirt that people don't like. The guy who landed a, I can't remember his name, who landed a, a uh, uh, one of those little fucking things on a asteroid or something. You know, you get those guys who, who uh, you know, he remember that physicist? He landed, oh, I yeah, can't remember yeah, yeah. what he, yeah, he landed something on a, probably should have asked you if I should have sworn first, but. Um, oh, don't worry land, about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then everybody went went crazy on them. But but again, I think that we're creating a culture that's inhibiting or preventing our own flourishing by an unwillingness to have a conversation. The only person mm. I've I've had is actually on your island over there, uh, Lori Penny. She had a conversation with me on Wiki uh, letters. We had a, a letter, a, a very brief letter exchange. Um, but again, I think that the key thing to remember is a feature of the ideology is that um, if if you have a conversation with somebody who holds a belief different from your own, then you're platforming them. You're giving them a voice to, to oppress marginalized peoples. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, sometimes I, I think that we might, there, there might be like a small, like current realization that like sometimes you, people need to be allowed to sort of express their, their stupidity if you think their ideas are stupid like the in britain we we just had um this like or last week anyway there was a big controversy because there was a a march in london against the vaccine passports oh, yeah. idea yeah, yeah. and um to my great regret they managed to roll out the craziest people they could find to speak at the rally they didn't pick the reasonable people making the actual arguments about it they picked a bunch of nutcases um, which was really irritating because it meant everyone who was like either there or thinks that, you know, maybe they should be, you know, maybe it's a great thing that they're out, like protesting that um, is is a nutcase as well, which really frustrated me. But but there was um, a, a radio host called um, James O'Brien, who is um, just insufferable, I think. Um, I used to think he was pretty reasonable and now I've realized he just is a grandstanding, um, yeah, expletive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll not go too bad on him, but essentially he was like, oh, you know, the, it's so great that these people were able to stand up and show how stupid they are. And I was like, you're there. You're so almost there. Like <laughs> you need people to be like, they, they, they will continue to believe whatever they believe in private. It doesn't go away when you tell them not to talk about it. In fact, it, sometimes it gets worse. Like people right. think crazier and crazier things if they're not allowed to be challenged. And I Correct. guess that's where we're going with the, the, the sort of... No, we're already there. Wokeism, yeah. Like because it's unable there. to be challenged, it gets crazier and crazier. Um, and people are concerned about what happens when like a party who fully embraces this ideology gets into power. Because um, theoretically it may happen, right, at some point. It's happened uh, in the city of Portland. Okay. And the, 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 how are they the, how are they doing at governing? Just because, like, I always think that, like, is the how is are they constant, doing at governing? Is the infighting the whole fucking it, city? Well, the uh, whole city is a shithole. There's a there's a uh, Portland looks like shit Instagram page you should check out. Downtown is just, I mean, it's it's a triumph of social justice. Right. Um, and, and, and they, Seattle, they, Seattle uh, I think the city attorney is running. She's openly uh, abolished the police person. Openly abolished the police. Okay. But fact um, check me. Do have, have any of these administrations then had to face 
a re-election campaign yet? Well, the DA in Portland, Mike Schmidt, um, I can't speak to what he's done recently, but initially he didn't prosecute any of the rioters. Mm-hmm. And this whole problem could have been nipped very early on. Look, you don't need to make a new law. We already have the existing infrastructure. If you riot and you destroy buildings and you assault police officers, or assault anybody for that matter, mm-hmm. you'll be arrested. It doesn't matter why. In fact, I had a run-in campaign for mayor, but it was too late at that point. My sole platform was if you riot, you will be arrested independent of your political affiliations. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> What's even more amazing is people would say you're a conservative for that. Really? Because <laughs> I want to arrest people who destroy the city. That makes me a conservative. Well, that's that's uh, that's how far the um, Overton window has shifted. You know, that's how far the the uh, um, yeah. that's that's also why being on the right or being on the left doesn't even mean anything anymore. Those are meaningless mm. terms. I can't speak to your people in the island, etc. But they really are largely meaningless terms yeah i mean i've been thinking this more and more for a while um like do you think we're in this sort of switch where left and right just isn't mattering anymore and the only thing that is is it's like i don't know i don't even know how to sort of classify the axis yet it's like authoritarianism versus like pro freedom or something along those sort of lines like is that is that where we're now sort of lining up because i find myself agreeing with all of these people who I used to think were horrendously right wing. Um, right. And I haven't changed my opinions. It's just like the things that I used to agree with them on were very small and we all just agreed on them. And now like the really central things to like society, like civil rights, freedom of speech, those sorts of things are now like under debate. And I'm like, hang on. Well, no, I'm going to agree with the, the right wingers here because that, you know, I thought we all agreed this. Right. That's exactly what Dave Rubin keeps saying. He didn't change his values at all. The culture shifted. And so, can you hold on one second? Hey, can I help yeah. you? I'm going to hold on one second. Yeah, no problem. Sorry about that. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, don't worry about that. Uh, right. Apologies. What... Apologies. Sorry about that. Um, um, Dave Rubin. I'm sorry. I'm totally sorry. Oh, yeah. So that, that that my beliefs haven't changed, but the political landscape has significantly shifted. Hmm. So yeah. um, that's why I don't think that the terms right and left are – I mean, I mean, if you really think, like, what's a central tenet of the right – I don't know, maybe against abortion, but not even that. I mean, I don't even know. I guess it's like a family resemblance thing or or Mm. a series of overlapping Venn diagrams of what people believe. But I don't find them useful categories. The category I said is something piggybacking off of what you said, which is um, uh, I think it's it comes down to the fault line in the new culture war is Well, one of the fault lines is cognitive liberty. Mm. And there are those who want to have the freedom and everybody else to have the freedom to think what they want to think. And there are those who do not. So I am not religious, for example. Um, I think it's absolutely despicable and morally abhorrent and should be punished to the full extent of the law of the people burning churches. I think that everybody has the 
right to worship or not worship in my case uh as as they would like and no there, there should be no compulsion to do that um and i find the siege now particularly in, in canada i find the fault line to be cognitive liberty mm. i mean that's a disturbing place to be in um cognitive liberty feels like something that shouldn't be I don't know, uh, something up for debate. Like, I just, yeah, I can't, I can't, it's, it's, I, I totally agree with the, the, your classification of, of what it is. It's like the, it's a, it's cognitive, uh, Again, cognitive I'm just, liberty. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the only fault line. I published a piece mm. in the American mind where I talked about some other fault lines, like, but, um, I just think it's a much better way. Like, you know, a lot of often I hear these these the wokesters called liberals. These are not liberals. They're explicitly not liberals. They're mm. illiberals. It's the mm. it's, it's opposite land again. We're mm. using opposite terms like equity and equality or diversity be another one. And so, I I'm not sure. I I don't think the traditional right left does the work that it should. Hmm. So like. Uh... What do you think we do about this? Like, how do we, um, uh, how does one, because again, th then there's the, the idea that, because people can say, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're practicing the exact opposite of what you're preaching here. You know, you're saying that you shouldn't let people think about, um, about the way they want, or, sorry, I'm trying to word this badly. It's like, if we are saying, okay, how do we prevent this being the case? Like, how do we break people out of, like, the woke ideology and get them to think a little more critically? No, no, uh, you're not, you're not, you, mm. there's no, 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 wait a second, wait a second. Let's be clear about this. This is very important. People can think anything they want to think, mm. right? So I'm not, when you fight against this, you're not telling people what to think. Mm -hmm. You're trying to change the moral mind. You're trying to change, at least I am, I'm trying to change the way that we view, just for example, look at one thing, segregation, right? Mm -hmm. So segregation is very popular among racists, and then you know, liberals <laughs> oppose segregation. I consider myself adamantly opposed to racial segregation. And now there's a new racial segregation coming in place by the new moral orthodoxy, the neo-racists. And so challenging that you're not telling people what to think they're telling you what to think about a whole bevy of issues you're not telling anybody what to think mm. that's the difference yeah no i think that's a fair a fair uh, a fair assessment of things so uh, yeah it's it's uh, yeah it's a really difficult place to be in as a as a society when it's we're watching things sort of fall apart a little but do you think we can like succeed in in attempting to i don't know uh, progress as a society and culture as a nation perhaps in America or Britain or as like a a species in in a way that we can i don't know reinvigorate our trust in the ideas of like liberalism and the stuff that got us this far in the first place like there's obviously yeah. tweaks to be made to the system and this is this is what plays to what you said earlier is you know a lot of the people like criticizing capitalism have have, have some 
you know, excellent points. Um, but like what their criticism isn't like capitalism. They're criticizing the horrendous corruption of, of the system that's happened, or at least that's you, my you take can, on it. You can only restore the promise and trust in institutions if there's something worthy of promise, uh, if there's something worthy of trust. Mm. And right now our institutions, many of our institutions are not worthy of trust. They've betrayed their missions like the ACLU or the SPLC or the entire university system, I'd argue. Um, mm. and, and the, the question then becomes, like you said, what do we do about it? The whole thing is a legitimacy crisis. It's a, it's a crisis of legitimacy in the institutions. And that's because the institutions aren't doing, oh, another guy from your island. Um, I had a wonderful little thread about this that from, from trigonometry, Constantine. Um, this is a question this is a question of how do we restore trust in our institutions? But our institutions have to be worthy of that trust. And right now they have betrayed their fundamental principles and mission statements. So because I'm I've I've been asking a lot of really, really smart people and um there's been very few answers. And I, because I would love us to not I'll give you have, an answer. Yeah, have get I just I want us to get to a point where we can we can all like think about how to renew our institutions without just tearing them down, because that's where it looks like we're going. Yeah, you're 100% correct. I'll give you an answer. Uh, the first thing you have to do is the most unsexy thing ever, and you're going to roll your eyes when I give you the answer, but you've got to show up. Okay. You just have to show up. You have to show up to meetings. You have to show up to town halls. You have to show up to public venues, because if you don't show up, all the wokesters are going to show up. In fact, they already do show up. And they're just a small number of them, 5, 10, 15 people. That's the first mm. thing. Let me see if I can do this. My house is getting awfully busy right now. Can we stop this recording and uh, can I? Can we resume it in like five minutes? Yeah, of course. So one of the things you said earlier that I definitely wanted to circle back to now um, to quote or paraphrase Jen Psaki um, <laughs> is uh, that you said that Twitter is the death of wonder. What did Correct. you mean by that? I mean, that you know, sometimes I'll just wonder something and I'll think, oh, I wonder about this. Socrates talks about that as well, how important wisdom begins in wonder. Um, and I'll think to myself, oh, it'd be really interesting thought. You know, I like to like put that out and see what the response is. But if I would do that, I get a, you know, I don't even know how many people, and this is a function of the platform and anonymous, you know, trolling and people that fake accounts. I just get, you know, 500 people telling me I'm an idiot or a moron or a Nazi or things that have nothing to do with anything, as opposed to just saying, oh, or, or I wouldn't even mind if they said that it was a stupid thought, which is fine. I have a lot of stupid, <laughs> stupid thoughts. We all do. But it's a t Twitter in particular is a, has a great potential to, you know, you put a thought out, someone builds on it, but all, all of that is corrupted by a, a small, a small minority of people. And, uh, oh, uh, God, who was it? Who was just, I was just talking to about this. Um, I was just talking to, um, shit. I really want to, I really want to tell you who I was. I can't remember his name, but, um, I think it's a small number of people who dis who destroy the discourse. But it really it's where wonder goes to die. Because if you do that enough, if you you train yourself to stop wondering about things. 
Mm. Now, Twitter, Twitter's a terrible place because every time you wonder, you'll be criticized. And that which is rewarded uh, is repeated. And that which mm. is punished is, is ceased, you know, stopped. Mm. And so Twitter is a truly horrible platform. James Lindsay you interviewed him, said it's like a sewer that follows you. <laughs> oh, that's a great quote. Yeah, but it it is it is where 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 wisdom where wonder goes to die. You can't worry about anything on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the, the risk of getting the, the, yeah, go ahead. Um, at the risk of being jumped on for wondering something, I've been thinking a little bit about about the about an idea that that I think it was Keith Richards said. And I remember it was from a documentary. I think it was the Beatles anthology documentary. And it was Keith Richards being interviewed and they were talking about why the 60s, um, why that period in the mid 60s, early 60s, why they come out with such amazing music. Um, and they said that it was the hardship of the 50s and the rationing period in the in Britain after the war and, um, you know, the, the kind of rebuilding and everyone was very poor because the war had cost us a lot and um, things obviously started to improve. But he said that, you know, the hardship bred... Uh, this and the the fact that everyone believed in like freedom of speech and expression and ideas, you know, we just finished defeating the Nazis and who were very against all those things, and that he was that was kind of drawn into the the concept as well. And basically, that they said that that freedom combined with the struggle gave them the best music and the best art that that was possible to to create. Mm. You know, you've got to have a certain level of like affluence in the society to allow people to make the art. But um, then I've been thinking about having been at a music festival there um, that was very much it was it's one aimed at like adults. So I was working there and the kids all all come along. It's like a family festival, but the music is aimed at the adults. But like everything there that was great was from the 1980s and 1990s. Um, that's obviously not the case at every festival. But I was just like looking around being like, this is like a real monument to like the de- the, the kind of decline of, of the arts in a way. Um, and then... Yeah, it could- it could yeah. be because the technology switched, like, you know, like from your island, you know, Pete Townsend or, or Roger Daltrey, you know, from The Who or mm. Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or any, any of those. So, so when they, um, you know, they actually had instruments that they played. It wasn't synthesizers. And that had a certain level of skill and talent. Mm. And now you can replace that technologically. Mm. So that could also be a factor. Yeah, I mean, I I think I would have agreed with you more um, when because like at the start of the at the start of the pandemic, then I figured I was like, oh, my goodness, all of these, all of my favorite musicians are going to have 18 months. Well, I didn't know it was going to be 18 months then, but they're going to have like months here probably now to sit around and like write music and create and they're going to come out with low like maybe this is going to like just be the start of like a, a period where everyone all like the great artists of our generation go in and and like use this time to make their best work ever and there's been nothing that i've seen like th- that's come out of this that's particularly um i don't know yeah. interesting and i feel like i don't know yeah the, it's it's a, the increased censorship a, and everything has, has sort of stacked up and it, it's just like an idea great... that's floating around my mind no, I think that's a tremendous insight. I really think that's a tremendous insight. And and sometimes when I'm having a rough day, I wish, this is going to sound terrible to say, 
but I really wish that they would win. And I wish that their children and their grandchildren would be consigned to the world they've created to suffer eternally, right? To just live in, live in chazes, live in, have no freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, and they will see the world they've created. Mm-hmm. Suppression of art, the suppression of music. I mean, we can already look at totalitarian systems around the world. We know exactly what that looks like. So it's not like it's you don't have to do that much imagining, right? So, I, it, you know, it, it, I've been screaming about this stuff for years. Nobody's listening. Nobody listened. Now we're in the mess that we're in now. And the question is, how do we get out of that mess? And the only way out at this point, given institutional capture, the only way out is that you have to change the moral mind. You have to change the way people think about these ideas morally. We know, here's what, what, what I would feel very confident saying to you on the basis of a, a number of things, but uh, this ideology is not sustainable. It's too fucking stupid. It's too, you know, I mean, it's just, it's too demonstrably false, you know, hmm. to, you know, people, men and women, I mean, it's just, it's competing and I mean, it's just too stupid. You know, white fragility is one of the stupidest fucking ideas I've ever heard. It's like what little kids say to each other on the playground. You know, you're a witch. No, I'm not. That proves you're a witch. I mean, it's just it's just so dumb that it cannot possibly endure. The question is, what damage will it do to our institutions, given that we have an elite and professional class that are pushing this madness and that they are punishing? They are relentlessly seeking to punish people who challenge or question them. And if there's one thing that these people who are in institutions of, or in positions of power in HR, et cetera, they are nothing if but thorough. I mean, I've been investigated so many times for so many things. And these people are extraordinarily thorough, I will say. All of this investigation is basically on, on innocence of everything. But, mm. but the point is, and oh, that's the other thing. That's the other natural <clears throat> trajectory that follows, which is, Someone speaks out against the here is here it is. Here's the plan. This is how it works every time. Someone speaks out against the orthodoxy. They accuse him of some creepy sexual stuff. They find no evidence of anything creepy sexual. So then they start accusing him of or her, mostly him of a whole bunch of other things. They find nothing there. They keep accusing them. They call him a racist, a bigot, a Nazi, a homophobe. Uh, they continue to up the harassment. Uh, that person, the, none of the left will have that person on the media. So the right, he, that person will go to the right for the media. Then everybody will say, look, this guy went went to the, the right. He's obviously on the right. He's obviously some type of far right Nazi or far right lunatic because he's on Tucker Carlson or whoever show he's on. I mean, it's really, I mean, that's the path. Every single, I cannot possibly, why, have you ever asked yourself, why is it that, um, that people who challenge the prevalent, the, the dominant moral orthodoxy, the same thing happens to virtually all of them. And why is it that if you don't challenge it, you not only do you not hear of it, but just it just doesn't happen. Yeah. It's, li- it's literally a formula. You challenge the orthodoxy, mm. this is what will happen to you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The, and the, the, the only person who has managed to just like shake it off is, is, um, is Joe Rogan. He's the only person that seems to be able to like shake that sort of like criticism off. And it seems like it's just because he doesn't care. He's just like, all right, say what you want. And like, maybe that's the way to try. And then obviously 
it's very difficult when they're coming at you with heavy accusations and especially when it's like more official like investigations or like criminal things that they're they're coming at you with uh it's yeah it can be incredibly yeah, I mean, difficult <clears throat> and that's that i think is one of the reasons i mean rogan's a master interviewer right mm. he's a smart guy and he's a super good guy too and one of the reasons that people go to his podcast is because they are hungry for those conversations and they're not getting them. They're certainly not getting them in the academy. They're not getting them in the workplaces. They're not, everybody's walking on eggshells. So mm-hmm. here, a lot, here comes a guy, uh, you know, Rogan's a black belt in jujitsu. So he's, you know, he's right. I mean, that's, you've got to tap a lot of times, right? That's mm-hmm. it's an expression at the gym. I train where I train straight blast gym. Tough is not how you act. It's how you train. Right. So here's one tough, tough son of a bitch. Um, and he's thoughtful and he doesn't mind having his ideas challenged, et cetera. And, and people, I think that one of that's one of the reasons for the popularity of this podcast, in addition to him being extraordinarily good at it, world renowned, it's that he's not afraid to have those conversations. People want to hear that they want to know, and they're not getting that anywhere else in their lives. And frankly, that's a shame. They shouldn't have to go to podcasts for that, but that's just the world we've created. Oh, and then the institutions where all the woke people are, like Travis Brown is doing a documentary called The Woke Reformation, and he grew up basically in a Christian cult. And uh, Travis, you know, was just telling me yesterday that, um, I can't remember the word, suppressed, I think. You know, you have the suppression of videos on Facebook, on, mm-hmm. you know, al- algorithms, on YouTube, you know, he was telling me. And so the, the question is, you know, h- how do we how do we deal with that when I mean, this is a really a staggering problem, right? Mm. This is a staggering problem. Yeah, it hurts my head to think about it because you it's it's like ever there's an ever increasing like merge merging of like big tech and government, which is really disturbing, like like on a level that I can't even express like it's it, like, like I, don't even, I don't even know where to start with how, how problematic it is but it, it becomes like it's very difficult to figure out how you fight back against that merge merger of yeah of, of big tech that's and big I'm government doing. that's yeah. what all i'm doing all i do from the moment i wake up to the moment i go to bed is to think about how to fight back and i got a lot of shit going coming down the pike i'll tell you one of the things that I'm, I'm gonna do so i am completely convinced at this point and you know push back Feel free to disagree. I am completely convinced at this point that the reason so many people have been, uh, um, this is not the sh- the you know the core of the concentric circle. This is the, the layers other than the core. The reason so many people believe this is because they've been hoodwinked by the meaning of words. Equity. Oh, I'm for equity. Who isn't for equity? Oh, diversity. I'm for diversity. Who isn't for diversity? Belonging. Well, of course, people should feel like they belong. Of course, we want inclusive environments. And so the first order of business, and this is, you know, something I learned from the New Atheist Movement as well, is you have to, you have to clarify the meaning of terms. No, simply nobody's, nobody is being forthright about what certain terms mean. Hmm. And unless you clarify the meanings of words, you're just going to talk past each other and people are going to be able to smuggle and sneak, um, sneak in policy prescriptions that they that if that were actually explained to them they think they're just completely insane here's another part of that problem <clears throat> look at that woman who is 
running for attorney <clears throat> in Seattle, the, the Seattle, Washington, to the north of Portland. I just said that. I don't know if you're on the island, how familiar you are with our continent here. But uh, but this the city attorney, she, you know, when you, when you tell people there's a kind of basic disbelief on the part of liberals who think that the people in the far left could not possibly believe what they're claiming to believe. And and it doesn't matter if you say to them, oh, you know, these these people believe this. And even if these people say like, no, no, we actually do need to abolish the police and then publish an article in New York Times that says literally, yes, put this in the link too. yes, we actually mean abolish the police. It doesn't matter how many times people tell them that they will still say, well, they don't believe that. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you have a serious problem here. You have a serious problem of people left of center and left of center. But the people on the right believe it, and the people articulating it believe it. But the people to the left of center and the center, <clears throat> people who are liberal, they simply don't believe it. Mm-hmm. They don't. It's so crazy, they think nobody could possibly believe this. It's hyperbole, it's drama, it's trying to get attention. No, that, they actually believe it. Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland, dismantled the gang reduction task force. The gun, gun for gu- gu- guns in the city. I can't remember the exact name. And the homicide rate shot up. And then he's putting the gun reduction ta- task force back in place. Well, the, <laughs> the, the but so he he believed it, right? And the reason that he did that is because it he claimed that it was racist that affected co- communities called just just communities of color disproportionately. Well, it affected communities of color disproportionately because that's where the gun violence was. So he took that out, and then who suffered as a result of that? Well, mm. communities of color, young black men in particular. Mm. But then you say, say, well, no, people don't believe that. Well, if he didn't believe it, he wouldn't have acted on it, unless you want to say he has some Machiavellian political interest, which, again, is working against it because the murder rate's sky high. So mm. that argument falls. So mm. at some point, we have to say these people believe what they claim to believe. But people just, you know, I mean, how do you, that's another conversation. That's a whole other show. How do you get people who are liberal to believe that people actually want to abolish, defund prisons? And I mean, how do you get them to believe that people actually mean what they say? They, they believe what they say. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've had, I've had this, I've seen this like discussed with people online quite a lot about, um, like the, the in Britain, we had like a big debate about about Black Lives Matter, about um. So the uh, the the football, the English football team, um, they took the knee before a football game, and the there was like a portion of the fans that booed them for doing it, um. And the fans obviously got a lot of hate. Um, they said they didn't like the footballers bringing uh, politics into football. Um, you know, people are willing to, or welcome to think what they they want about that. But um, there was this like this really crazy thing where there was people, the football, some of the fans or some people were defending the fans and saying, look, you know, maybe they don't want them um, like taking a, a like a symbol of a Marxist political organization. And then people were like, oh, right. Black Lives Matter aren't a Marxist organization. And it's like, no, come on, right? There's like Black Lives Matter, like the, the slogan or whatever you want. And it's like the, the campaign against like, police brutality against black people and there's i have i've watched for 10 years whilst um x number of horrendous shootings and like murders took place um of of black people and no one no one really cared 
Um, so I, I, yeah, I kind of, I don't get people's, I don't kind of buy people's like moral outrage on, on the topic all of a sudden in the last month, last 18 months. But, um, like, I, 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 but when you look at Black Lives Matter, like the, the, the organization is like, they, they say that they're a Marxist organization. Like they say it, they openly say it. And yet there's people being like, oh, don't be stupid. They're not Marxists. Even though they're like openly admitting that they're Marxists. Like I, so, I, so that's so that's another problem. I have I actually have to go in three minutes. I have a I have a twelve thirty. But uh, so so that's the other problem. You know, I mean, you're right. This is a very complicated suite of factors that are actively working in concert to undermine Western civilization. They're destroying our institutions. They're destroying basic freedoms that we've constructed. And maybe it was democracy was just a moment. You know, and and maybe. The barbarians being inside the gate um, will continue to tear down the fabric of society. If that were the case, probably it wasn't worth defending in the, at all because it just wasn't resilient enough, right? So I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that it is worth defending. I think that the American project and the shining city upon the hill is something we should all aspire to. Um, I think that the way forward is that we have to start talking to each other again, and we have to start motivating people by looking at common interests by going up to superordinate identities, you know, what people have in common, as opposed to ever finer gradations. Oh, this guy's an immigrant or this guy's this. And I think that we have to start, by the way, and all of this has, it has it, all of this talk about equity and all this nonsense, dangerous nonsense. Has there, been any school system that's that's been fixed for low-income kids maybe particularly low-income black kids if i not not as far as i know so all this talking and destroying and everything and we still don't have the quality of opportunity yeah and that's what we should all hopefully want ultimately um but yeah it's like you said yeah. in the interview our immutable characteristics you know whether you know i'm white or whatever it's interesting. I'll tell you something. I've been. I used to conduct an experiment a, a while ago just for fun. I I go to this gym, a local gym, and uh, I'd sit and stretch in my workouts, and I do it in the basketball courts. Um, at the end of my workouts, I do it there because I could just watch the the kids play basketball. And I noticed over time, and then I started participating in this, that I was always the last to be picked even though I wasn't competing. And the reason that I was last to be picked is because I have gray hair and I'm old and people want to win, right? Mm. They, they want to win. <laughs> and um, I started to think, okay, so this would be a great example of, of uh, Twitter being death of wonder. Like if you put something like this out on Twitter, you'd have a million people going <laughs> utterly fucking crazy on you. And I wonder if your goal is to win, then it would be, rational not to pick me mm. if your goal is to be kind maybe you should pick me it depends whether or not i should be picked depends on what your goal is mm. right now are there certain goals we ought to have are there certain goals our institutions ought to have are there certain goals we ought to have well i mean that's a it's another question we could talk about are some goals better than other goals well, yeah, obviously, but that only if you believe in moral facts could you say that. Mm -hmm. So again, it's a complex, it's a complex problem. Yeah, 
but anyway, Peter, um, I've taken up uh, a lot of your time. I really, really appreciate it. It has been um, fascinating and uh, yeah, an, an absolute pleasure to, to get to chat to you. Um, well, thanks, Josh. I appreciate the interview and I appreciate the conversation. Let me know when it comes out and I'll tweet it out. Yeah, it will be out uh, on Thursday. Right. And the book is How to Have Impossible Conversations. And you can find me on Twitter at Peter Bogosian. And I should have a website up, Bogosian.com, B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-N.com. That'll come out, I don't know, pretty soon. Okay. Well, I will put links for everything we talked about and your Twitter stuff um, all in the description below. So, um, yeah, cool. thanks. Thanks very much, man. All right, man. Thanks, Chuck. Talk to you later, man. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. Don't forget our sponsor, ExpressVPN, and my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, can both be found in the links in the description below. And also, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow. Until next time, thanks for listening. Screw the hedge funds. You can make as many rules as you want, but if there's no teeth behind them, what's the point? Like Citadel is potentially just gone in a few months. It feels like financial institutions, that they are all laughing at us by buying GME. <laughs> Screw the hedge funds. Like I will lose my entire investment if it brings them down. Why on earth last May could you buy the entire company for $200 million? What's been happening on Reddit and in social media and in the marketplace? has never been seen before. I argue that nothing is off the table. There is nothing off the table when dealing with the volumes of money in something as big as the United States uh, stock market. The hedge funds have clearly underestimated a group of a group of people raised on Friday night World of Warcraft rates. Dark pools, they are they're another uh, mechanism to manipulate and cheat. Mainstream journalists don't say these things for a number of reasons. Uh, one is their sources are the people that I'm talking about, and so they can't call somebody a crook. Super Stonk and the other communities that have emerged are a hive mind, the likes of which we have never seen before. It's madness and brilliance, insanity and genius all rolled into one. It's very possible that Citadel will be gone in a few months. And, and not just Citadel, but the entire financial system has the potential to come crashing down. These crooks continue to gamble recklessly with the world economy, and this could be the moment that they finally get their justice.